Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature an event from the 2020 Portland Book Festival, moderated by author and editor John Freeman. The event title is keyed off of Freeman's anthology of the same name, Tales of Two Planets, Stories of Climate Change and Inequality in a Divided World. Freeman sat down with authors Amy Nezakamotutil and Kwai Strong Washburn to talk about writing and the environment. And the conversation naturally turns to language and its relationship to history, connection, identity, and the natural world. How and why do we write about a natural world in crisis? What are the ethics of doing so? What lessons can we draw on from biodiversity for our own cultures? Amy Nezakamotutil is an acclaimed poet and author of the illustrated essay collection World of Wonders. It's a book about the natural world and the way its inhabitants can teach, support, and inspire us. Kwai Strong Washburn's debut novel, Sharks in the Time of Saviors, is about the supernatural events that force a family to reckon with the meaning of heritage and the cost of survival. Here's our moderator, John Freeman. Thank you so much for having us. Um, The title of our panel is the title of this anthology I put together, but I thought of it more as a doorway into having a discussion about what it means to write into and through the environment. Using the natural world not as a green screen, if you will, um, as a projection space for human emotions, but rather as a complex knowledge system all of its own. But the first question I I wanted to ask to both of you, um, since this is a discussion about what the environment means ethically when you write it into your work, is how are your books forming an ecology? And what do you think is possible when you think of uh, narrative space as an ecology in, in fiction versus, say, essays. Oh my gosh, I could do a whole essay on this, John, for LitHub if you want. But um, I would say, just in the space of time here, I wanted to start with love, um, and in this case, my nerdiness for weird animals and plants, and I wanted to end with love. So I wanted to kind of put a kind of a personal touch towards my vision of my vision of writing for the environment, writing for praise of the outdoors. And what's that Southern saying? You catch more flies with honey. So I didn't want to start out and and other people do that well, and that's so great. But I wanted to start from a place of here's what I love. Don't you want to love it too? You know, or don't, can't you see why I'm so excited about it too? And then kind of step back just a little bit and to kind of give voice to Somebody like me, a brown girl growing up in white America, um, in small towns all over white America, where I didn't see myself in books. So that's kind of a a really quick answer to your, um, how do I create ecology? I wanted to put myself in the planet that I loved so much because I didn't see myself represented a lot. So I'll I'll at least pause there. But Kavaya, how about you? 
I think that a lot of the things you described are, are similar for me. Those were some of the same things that drove me to write this, particularly when you talk about, you know, ethnicity or race and how that can feel in different parts of the United States. Having grown up in, in Hawaii, which was, you know, it did, I didn't know it at the time, but it's an incredibly unique state in the United States because of the sort of the mixing of the cultures there that is not present to the same degree there that it is everywhere else that I've lived since, you know, this is incredible influx of different immigrant groups that have all had an influence on the culture so that the culture of the islands feels like a very particular place that is not exactly part of the United States. And yet it sort of is. Uh, so I think that part of the things that I was writing about spoke to that, but, you know, just more generally in terms of an ecology and where I think this sort of book might fit in as a, a part of an ecology or, or sort of a way to sort of express the interconnectedness of things. One of the things that I was, I was interested in, in exploring in, in this book was the way in which there was a period of time when the entire history and, and sort of the soul of a people was contained in their, in their verbal lore. Right. And the way that, that, that history was contained in for for the native Hawaiians, it was contained in hula and it was you know expressed both through that and through a, an incredible relationship with things like stars and how stars were used as the primary point of navigation and how their relationship with the natural world was it was like a necessary component of their existence. Right. And, and as time has changed and we've, we've gone through kind of the rapid progression and industrialization and, and population explosion that has led us to the place we are now, some of those things have drifted some, but they've also remained and, and found a way to remain relevant and to survive and, and live alongside an otherwise very diametrically opposed set of cultural beliefs. So part of what I was trying to write about was that sort of push and pull between the ideas that, that are present in other parts of America I've been in and ideas that were present in the islands. And it kind of contains both those things, both elements of ethnicity and culture and race, uh, but also a relationship with the natural world that I that feels transcendent and that I wanted to kind of express as something that was transcendent, but that is also a reflection of a place and a people that is that is very strongly tied to the natural world in a way that I feel a lot of, you know, sort of classic, quote unquote, Western industrialized societies aren't. And in Kavai, in your novel, the, um, the sugarcane plant that is nearby where the kids uh, grow up is closing down and big box retail stores are opening up. Um, and there's a kind of interesting contradiction between the richness of the world that they live in that's almost animist. Um, and the stories that are told to them and the, the, the deprivation of, um, of a kind of metaphorical lack of biodiversity in economic pro um, prospects, if that makes any sense. And Amy, you know, similarly in your book, you, you move around a lot because your mother was a physician, um, you know, one of the moved from the Philippines and became a doctor in the U S and you're, father was a respiratory therapist. And, and so you grew up in lots of different towns as, as the sort of, as you describe it as the brown children of two scientists. And so your world of, of biodiversity is not necessarily reflected in the world that you went to school in. And one of the most poignant uh, 
juxtapositions of that is when you go into school and draw a peacock. And that, that chapter has a whole story about the peacock as told to you by your grandmother, I believe. And when Kawhi was speaking about, you know, the way that uh, history is braided into myth, I, I wonder if that resonated with you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I always say um, in, my, in my books of poetry, I always say that my parents, and, and they, they bristle at this description, but I'm going to say it anyway. They were the first poets I ever heard. You know, they, it was through them just telling me stories of their homeland where I learned what a metaphor was. You know, they would, um, it wasn't from books. It was hearing um, them describe a corpse flower, for example, you know, um, uh, saying like um, the flower is a hunger. And I think they used it to scare me at times, you know, into into submission, like the, the flower, the corpse flower, one of the largest flowers on the planet and found in um, the, in Bali and in, um, in Sumatra, uh, and uh, a little bit in the Philippines, they would say that, oh, these flowers will eat girls who stay out late, you know, um, that kind of thing. So this flower is a hunger. That's how they would talk normally, you know, and I'd, I'd, I'd be sitting there long after they would say goodnight to me and just be like, why can't my parents tell me normal bedtime stories? You know, you know, I'd, I'd come home and say, mom, I, I learned about the whale shark. Didn't you say there's a whale shark festival in the Philippines? And they're like, ah, yes. That shark was actually a greedy man. He didn't give his money away. And, uh, you know, I don't want to recap the whole fairy tale, but the, the folk tale is that he was so greedy, the gods punished him in the Philippines and put his coins, his spots of silver all over his body. And then so, again, I would be horrified laying there like, why did you just ruin my favorite shark? You know, um, now I think of him as a greedy, you know, stingy old man. But now, now I've come back around full circle. Now I just love them so much. I want to protect them. But it was through these stories where I was learning metaphor and just the delight because I would repeat after them, kind of in bed, alone in the dark, repeat how they talked in some ways. Um, and so while I, I always say, like, I didn't know who Dr. Seuss, for example, was. I didn't read children's literature. Uh, I thought Dr. Seuss was one of my mom's coworkers, honestly. And I feel like my greatest kind of foundation for writing now as a poet and uh, as, as one who writes essays is their stories, is their folk, folk tales, you know, um, how they paced it, how they, how they could almost mimic the tension of a line break, but in their telling stories. Um, and so that's kind of what I've just always wanted to do. To me, my parents are always going to be the best storytellers, the best poets ever. Um, even though they would never identify it like that at all. Kavai, what about you? Um, your your novel is full of these really beautiful lyric riffs, you know, that are sometimes full of sentence fragments that are just descriptively rich and almost poetic in the sense that I, I reading them, I thought, you put some line breaks in this and you could send this off to, you know, Poetry Magazine. And I'm, I'm curious, um, if you could talk about the craft of building kind of descriptive scenes and atmosphere, you know, does, does that come from writerly impulses? Does it come from family? Does it come from, you know, the, the feeling of where you were from? Yeah. You know, it's a combination of a lot of different things. I think that one of, so I love poetry. First of all, it always surprises me when I run into, into writers, particularly novelists or, or short story writers, you know, like prose writers that, don't read poetry because it just really surprises me. I think some of the things that have moved me most, even when we talk about the, you know, the natural world 
I, there's a poem by uh, Aristotle's Germain that's, it talks about uh, a shark being pulled onto a dock. And there's this image of the shark being pulled onto the dock and she describes what she must feel that oxygen must feel like a sledgehammer, you know, to the shark as it's being pulled from the water. And it's, you know, both beautiful and, and, and tender and, and tragic all at the same time. And there's, there's tons of just wonderful poetry in the world. And so I think part of what you're, what you're seeing there in the writing, and I, I appreciate the compliment, is a result of the, the influence of poetry has on me, as well as uh, music. You know, I love, I love music. I love lyrics and, and the songs that, that have certainly moved me have had an influence on me as a writer as well. So there's, there's a sense of musicality and, and poetry in my work because there's such strong influences on me. And when I write, I want my words to feel like those words feel, you know, when I read poetry or when I, when I listen to a song. Uh, in addition to that, though, I was, I was looking for a way to kind of express what feels like, going back to the, the sort of comment I made earlier, I was looking for a way to kind of express the feeling that I, that, that, that I get from, from the kind of native vocal history of a place and how that can be tied up in things like chants and, and hula, you know, for, for the native Hawaiian culture and trying to find a way to make that come across on the page as well, in addition to those things. And so I think trying to find a way to express a relationship with the world that feels like it is based within the soul of a people that are of that place at the same time as, as being influenced by, by music and, and poetry. I think that's where, where a lot of that comes from. Both of your books are told from a kind of child's eye perspective, at least Kavai until the siblings moved to America to go to university in Spokane and San Diego and Portland, where Nainog ends up as an EMT, having some truly spooky um, situations. I, I wonder if you can talk about what it means to narrate from a child's eye perspective, morally, um, what things are made possible by it, and what aspects of breaking down the barrier between nature and humans might become possible as a result of seeing from a child's eye? One of the things that I think is, I've ex experienced as a parent, you know, having two young children now, I have a daughter that's six and a half years old and a daughter that's two and a half years old. And one of the things that I love the most about being with them is the complete wonder that they bring to any situation things that I have become almost blind to that are actually just like incredible little miracles. Something as simple as like a bird landing on the railing of our porch and being able to kind of like observe this bird or in our backyard, there's some rabbits like jackrabbits that live in our backyard. And we get these wonderful opportunities to observe them. And the first time my children encounter these things, it's, it's like mind blowing. It's the most amazing, incredible thing they've ever seen. And they want to know everything about it. Like, how does it move like that? What is it doing? And that sort of breathless adoration and, and attachment to the natural world is something that you, I think that over time you lose that, right? And that's one of the things that's wonderful about having children. And I think that's one of the things that makes, you know, there have been plenty of studies that have shown that, for instance, as people age, the more time they spend with children, the more likely they are to remain to, to remain vital, to have a certain vibrancy to them. So as people get into their 70s, 80s, 90s, if they spend a certain amount of time with children, they're much healthier than they are if they don't. And I think that's part of what it is. It's this sense of shared wonder. So that's something that I think you can definitely achieve with trying to write through the eyes of a child. 
I will say one of the things that I try to avoid that I think is really easy, that's kind of a double-edged sword against that, is I think that you can kind of use a child's perspective against the knowledge that it's most likely an adult that's reading the book potentially, right? So if you have a book that's kind of meant for adults, but the, the character in it at that period, point in time is a child, particularly if it's in the first person perspective, you can have the child be sort of ignorant of things that the adults are gonna understand contextually. Uh, a really good example of this is there's a book about uh, a concentration camp and there, it's told from the perspective of a child. And so us as adults, we understand the implications of what's happening. And yet this child has no idea really what they're facing. And so they're, they're kind of innocence in regards to any specific situation. They don't understand the gravity of like, you can't make a bunch of noise at night and be celebratory about somebody's birthday in a concentration camp. And we know that as adults and yet this child doesn't. And so you can set up this juxtaposition between what the reader knows and how they're contextualizing what's happened. And it, it kind of forces this emotional tug of war with the reader that's an adult being like, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand what's happening. And the child is, is blissfully ignorant. So you can set that up, but I think that that's also really easy to do. And I think it can kind of oversimplify the internality of a child. And so I think that for me, the challenge was as writing about these children was to make them as childlike as I could in the sense of them having this wonderful connection to the world that's fresh and new, but also recognizing the true somewhat complete person that they can be and that they can be, they can be mean and selfish and greedy, and they can actually have a lot of very adult you know, thoughts and feelings about the world and to not oversimplify them and turn them into just these saintly things that we can use as a reflection of our, you know, us as a, as a reader coming to this as an adult and being able to reflect off their presumed innocence. So uh, I think I've tried to consider all those things at the same time when writing from the perspective of children. Amy, does any of this resonate with you? Because uh, one of the things I love about World of Wonders is the complexity of childhood that comes through in your descriptions of where you are and what your friends are doing and also, you know, what, what sort of animals and plants and wildlife you're kind of mapping onto. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so interesting to hear you say that, Kaba, because it's, um, I co-sign everything, you know, so while I didn't place any, any of my essays from a, um, from me as a kid's point of view, um, there was, there's one essay where I, um, really, I feel guilty saying that I wrote it. I shaped it. My kids wrote it. They, uh, we were bird watching, and it, it's comprised of like the snippets, um, just like a third of what they had said in one afternoon of bird watching here in Mississippi. And yeah, one thing that I mentioned before is that you don't have to teach kids how to wonder. They just kind of do it, you know. If something happens around middle school and i'm seeing that now with my 13 year old where who, where he's beginning to think hanging out with mama is not always the coolest thing not always but it's just glimpses of it i hope i hope he always thinks it's cool to hang around me but i know how i treated my parents and i i have stuff coming towards me you know um but i will say i will say this that even um you know when i was in in grad school i'd go in and 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 teach poetry to first graders and and kindergartners. And I didn't know if I wanted kids. I pretty much actually said I did not want kids. But one thing that it just was such a welcome change to be with these machines, these little miniature machines that would point out so much joy and beauty. And I know it sounds Pollyannish to say it, especially in this trash fire year of 2020, but it is honest to goodness the truth. Like you, um, 
I go, I remember walking with them and I do it now with my kids. When we go on walks, our pockets are full of like, we'll find a red bead or a rock shaped like Florida where my parents are, you know, um, we come back and our, nobody wants to throw away anything because they're all like precious things that we found, you know, and in writing about wonder, which I know makes some people roll their eyes or like, how can, you know, this is like forced, forced positivity. It's not at all. Um, I wanted this to be a book for people, for grownups whose pockets are still full, but also for the grownups whose pockets are empty. So with that in mind, I absolutely had what Kavai was saying, where I didn't want to have a scene from my childhood be like uh, me as, say, sixth grade writing about race. So I very much wanted to include the, the way I tackled it in my book was that I didn't have, the, it, it's the truth, I did not have the vocabulary. I did not know what the word microaggression means. So it would be so false for me to say like, Billy did a microaggression on me on the bus, you know. All I had was the true and honest emotion of like feeling myself be embarrassed of my parents, not knowing, usually I'm a, a garrulous, talky, chatty kid and not knowing what to say. I would be just so frustrated and I, I would go into a reverie of thinking about narwhals, for example, when I was in Kansas because I didn't have vocabulary and I was so stifled by, you know, there's a, there's a scene in my narwhal essay where a boy who I considered a friend saw my mom, we were, she was dropping, uh, the, bus, the school bus was dropping me off in front of my house, saw my mom unloading groceries from the car and my mom's Filipino. And he did this like, you know, the horrible gesture of pulling his eyes back and doing the whole like, he didn't know what she was, you know, basically. He didn't know what a Filipino was, but he, I remember the taunt was like, she doesn't look like you, look at her eyes and pulling back her eyes and flipping them inside out. So all I could do at that moment was to showcase how I did feel as a 12 year old was get quiet and be so almost ashamed of my mom. Like, why do you have to be outside? Heaven forbid, like, why are you outside during when the school bus drops me off? I wanted the reader to know that uh, maybe like them, I didn't have vocabulary for what I was observing and what I was experiencing in the world. Um, but I had imagery that I could show and I could show metaphors for how I was feeling, even if I, if words failed me at the moment. Anyway, so I, I thought it was important when I was thinking about, you know, that question, who is this book for? And I want it to be not just for nature lovers, but for people who also forgot what it's like to have full pockets, who can go on a walk in Central Park and not come back with anything in their pocket. I wanted to remind them as well. One of the things I like about both of your books is they they activate very quickly on the first page, really, that sense of wonder and beauty and pleasure and language and density and descriptions of the natural world. In fact, it's on the first page of your novel, Kawhi. You, you make a connection between landscape and its destruction and, and the creation of a place. Uh, and Amy, very quickly within your book, you make a, a connection between biodiversity and lack of diversity, um, you know, and showing how they're in your life, those two things are connected. And yet in spite of those, those connections, both of your books, they're not uh, doom elegies. They acknowledge our deep and terrible predicament, but they don't, um, they don't traffic in doom. And, you know, I, I think the best way to, 
to describe that to the people who are listening now is to have you read briefly from each of them. I wonder, Amy, if you could start and, and then Clive, if you could read next. I kind of like that phrase that John, I had to be honest, tra I, like I want a t-shirt that says sometimes, sometimes I traffic in doom, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> but traffic. All right. So let me, let me just read a, a little section. This is from a, a section um, on my favorite cephalopod. And if you don't have a favorite cephalopod, you need to fix your life and get one, find one. Mine is the vampire squid. Way down deep, in the perpetual electric night of the water column, a place where sunlight doesn't register time or silver filament, the vampire squid glides in search of a meal of marine snow. These lifeless bits of sea dander are actually the decomposing particles of animals who died hundreds of feet above the midnight zone. The vampire squid reaches for this snow with two long ribbons of skin, which are separate from its eight tentacles. If it is truly hungry, it trains its large eye on a glow, the lure of something larger, a gulper eel perhaps, or an anglerfish waddling through the inky water. The squid's eye is about the size of a shooter marble, but this is nevertheless the largest eye to body ratio of any animal on the planet. Now, if the squid wants to disappear or feels threatened, perhaps no other creature in the ocean knows how to convey that with a more dazzling yet effective show. When the vampire squid pulse swims away, each of its arm tips glow and wave in different directions, confusing for any predator. But to make an even more speedy getaway, the squid uses jet propulsion by flapping its fins down towards its mantle and simultaneously blasting a stream of water from its siphon, all of its arms in one direction. And in the next stroke, the squid raises all of its arms all over its head in what is called pineapple posture. The underside of these arms is lined with tiny tooth-like structures called cirri, giving an appearance of fangs ready to bite down on anything that wants to chase it down for a snack. As if that wasn't enough to shoo away a predator, the vampire squid discharges a luminescent cloud of mucus instead of ink. The congealed swirl and curlicue of light temporarily baffles the predator, who ends up not knowing where or what to chomp, while the vampire squid whooshes away meters ahead. It's as if you were chasing someone and they stopped, turned, and tossed a bucket full of large gooey green sequins at your face. I wished I was a vampire squid the most when I was the new girl in school. Uh, Kavai, I think the section you read describes a behavior of sharks. Yeah, there's, there's a couple different sections I could read from. I know the one of the sections kind of ends just before uh, the first sharks appear, or I could read from a section in which we kind of get to see the sharks for a minute. Would you prefer I read from the, the part where we kind of talk about the, the movement of the sharks? Absolutely. Yeah. I would. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, this is from a this this is from the opening section of the novel. Really, it's the the very end of the first chapter in which the family that this novel is about is a family that's kind of I would consider them blue collar. So at one point they had both been working kind of good um, middle class jobs, and due to economic circumstances beyond their control, the the father in particular loses his job as the sugarcane industry on their island collapses, 
but they want to take their their children on an outing. They want to, for just a little while, kind of get away from that feeling of economic despair. And so they kind of cobble together the money to be like, okay, we're going to go and do something that tourists get to do all the time on these islands. And we're going to go out on a glass bottom boat ride. And so they go on this glass bottom boat ride. And of course, probably because it says something about me being a terrible person, something happens to them while they're on that glass bottom boat ride. And this is the tail end of that when the mother sees that her son has fallen over the boat and she's she's gone to get him. She's hopped off the boat to try and get her son before he drowns. Your head was bobbing like a coconut in the ocean. You were getting smaller and farther away and the water was hissing and spanking the boat. I don't remember anyone saying much of anything except the captain calling out from upstairs. Just keep pointing, we're turning, just keep pointing. Your head went under and the ocean was flat and clean again. There was a song playing from the speakers, a tinny, stupid sweet Hawaiian cover of More Than Words, which I still can't listen to, even though I liked it once. The engines churned. The captain was talking from the wheel upstairs, asking Terry to keep pointing. Terry was the one who'd thrown the life preserver that was floating empty in the waves, moving away from where I'd seen your head. I was tired of being told to point, being told to wait, so I said something to Terry. He made a face. Then his mouth was moving under his mustache, words back at me. And the captain was calling again from above. Your father started in too, all four of us saying things. I think I finished talking with something that made Terry start so that his face flushed around his sunglasses. I saw myself in those mirrored lenses, me darker than I thought I was, which I remember made me happy and my shoulders from basketball and that I'd stopped squinting my eyes. Then my feet were up on the railing and Terry's eyebrows were raised and he started to open his mouth at me. He reached for me. I think your father did too, but I leapt into the big empty ocean. I hadn't been swimming long when the sharks passed under me. I remember them first as dark blurs that the water told me the weight of those animals, a shove of wake against my legs and belly. They passed me and all four of their fins punched the surface, knives on the summit of dark swells, cutting for you. When they reached where your head had been, the sharks dove under. I started to swim after them, but the distance might as well have been to Japan. I dunked once to try and see. Underwater, there was nothing but a vague darkness and froth where the sharks were, other dark colors. Pink and chummy ropes rising from the froth, I knew those would be next. I didn't have any more breath. I broke the surface and choked in oxygen. If there were sounds, if I yelled, if the boat was closer, I don't remember. I went back down. The water where you were was all churn. The shapes of the sharks were thrashing, diving, rising, something like a dance. The next time I went for air, you were at the surface sideways, prone and ragdolling in the mouth of a shark. But the shark was holding you gently, do you understand? It was holding you like you were made of glass, like you were its child. They brought you straight at me, the shark that was holding you, carrying its head up out of the water like a dog. The faces of those things, I won't lie. I shut my eyes as they neared, when I was sure they were coming for me too, and if everyone was yelling and crying out, as I imagined they were, and if I was thinking anything, I don't remember any of that, except the black of my closed eyes and my prayers without a mouth. The sharks never hit. They passed again below, around me, wake like a strong wind, and then I opened my eyes. You were there at the boat, clutched to a life preserver, your father reaching down for you. I remember how angry I was at how slow he went all the time in the world. And I wanted to say, are you a Powhana County worker? Grab our child, our alive child. And you were coughing, which meant you were breathing and there was no red cloud in the water. This wasn't just one of those things. Oh, my son, now we know that none of it was.
And this was when I started to believe. That's the end of the chapter. I just, I just wanted to mention, and I don't write fiction, Kavad, but I, of course, appreciate it so much. And I remember when I read that part, um, it was nighttime, <laughs> but you did that thing that, um, that writers do so well that just makes me swoon. It's like you don't let us see the sharks right away, and so it becomes even scarier. We see, like, that, that line, those lines that you say, like, I could feel the, the weight of what was underneath me by the, the wake, um, like how much this mother was being bounced around in the water by the sharks passing so near. Having been in water with sharks before, I just think you, not not deadly ones like that, but um, I think you just captured that so well without, that could have been a very cheesy opening kind of moment, but it's because you don't see exactly what's happening. You're kind of straining in the dark. So beautiful. I'm so glad that you read that out loud. Thank you. Goodbye later in the, in the book, uh... I know it goes to Portland, becomes an EMT, and he's he's uh, dating a woman who he sort of has to explain some of his his um, his facilities to, and he's they're listening to bird song, and she likes him because he steps into a room and her dog's upset, and he leans down, the dog quiets, and the umbrella for our talk is tales of two planets, and to me the biggest divide in this planet is the divide between humans and all other living things, whatever form, whether it's a tree or a dog or a Mexican walking fish, you know, which is one of Amy's favorite, um, favorite things in the world. Amphibian, thank you. Um, but I wonder if you can talk about that divide, how you experience it, if you experience it personally as a divide and where it um, reaches you on the spirit level. When the divide closes, you know, and you have moments where you feel closer to um, not human. Um, and when it uh, grows and you feel deeply entitled in your humanness. Yeah. Yeah. So I know for me, some of the most profound experiences I've had as, as an adult, even as a, even as like a teenager, you know, the, the things that have kind of indelibly left their mark on me, many of those were experiences in the natural world. Sometimes they were harrowing experiences. You know, I can remember a couple of times I was out surfing and I was out in water that it was like way too big. The surf was way too big for me to be out there. Uh, but I managed to live through it. I even took a couple of bad, really bad spills and was thought I was going to drown and things like that and, and managed to survive. Uh, but then there have been other times where I was like out. I can still remember this when I was out surfing on a point break and this pod of dolphins showed up on the, the out, outskirts of the point. And it was just me and my friend that were out there. And it was this gorgeous day. And the, the dolphins were out there playing and jumping in the water, probably like 30 feet from us for, for like half an hour. And we were just stunned. You know, we were completely stunned. Uh, there are so many ex examples of things I could, I could say like that. You know, I was, I was able to see a humpback whale breach from the air. I was like flying in. I was flying home to visit my family. Like my stepmother was ill. And as we were about to land on my island, you know, the island that I lived on and I hadn't been home for years, I looked out the window and it was whale season. And this whale from, you know, from the, the window of the plane, we got to see this humpback whale breach. And it was the most incredibly beautiful thing I've ever seen. I could go on and on and on, you know, but those are those things have made me feel more alive than than just about anything in the world uh, with with the exception of, you know, witnessing the birth of my children and a few other things that I feel like really touched me in this incredible way. 
Amy, we've got um, very little time to get before. Uh, I think we should open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, I think Susan is fielding these questions, and I, I don't want to cut off anybody who has a question. But if you want to address this while we're fielding those questions, that would be great. Going back to your original question, John, of the ecologies that we're creating here, I think a lot of times people forget that we're that. Yeah, it's one thing to easily to say it and say, "Sure, sure, I see it." but to really see it, how much we're all connected. Um, you know, I think of um, in your in your um, anthology, Tales of Two Planets, when um, Tashani Doshi, um, her piece on the Blue Mormon butterfly, and it's written from point of view. Uh, I don't wanna, I don't wanna spoil it. I don't know if she classifies this as like a lyric essay or a poem, but, but just talking about like, hey, we can build fences or we can pin, pin stars to these, these butterflies, it really kind of shows the language of violence that we do to animals absolutely translates to the language of violence for people, you know? Um, and then I think of the two essays on rain, or a poem on rain from Margaret Atwood, and then um, like I Shan's rain as well. Both of those situations talk about how people who are not just saying, okay, it's raining, but who notice things, who really, really look and experience how rain is part of their lives. So I, I would just say, um, before we start taking questions, it's like, it starts small. If we can notice that, if, if we're aware that, oh, if we use these chemicals, fireflies can't see each other and, um, and put their lights on, then maybe that will translate to noticing, oh, we can't cut this patch of tree because a cerulean blue warbler lives there um, and that'll affect XYZ insects maybe that we can also extend upon naming things. So not just saying, oh, this is nice rain, but it's a specific monsoon, or this forest holds two, two birds, but naming them, Cerulean Blue Warbler. Maybe then we can extend that to knowing that there's a little boy in Mississippi named Ramon who likes to have his bangs smoothed over to the side by his mom. If we can put names to things that we love on this planet, maybe then someone won't snitch on Ramon's family and call ice and take away Ramon's mother who works at a chicken plant. And that, that literally just happened last summer, you know? So it's like, if we could put names to the things that we see around us and realize that we're all connected, I think that we would all recognize that we have less desire for violence, to inflict violence on each other. We, we would just take care of each other because it's gonna come down to us, you know? Um, it's going to all trickle back down to, to our taking care of ourselves. This is a great conversation. Um, let's get to some audience questions. So maybe along those lines, but kind of the flip side of that, the question um, from someone is, what things or creatures in nature scare you rather than just fascinate you? Kavai, you want to start? Sure. Yeah, I think that a lot of creatures give me that just a sense of of awe, I think in the truest sense in which it is actually a, a, an ambivalence, like it's a mix of fear and, and wonder or beauty at the same time. I can think of anything from as simple as like a raccoon, like if I'm camping and raccoons get into my stuff in the middle of the night, it could be, that can even be like, it can be very scary, you know, because you're waking up in the middle of the night with some animal scratching around, you can almost like feel its breath through the side of your tent. And it turns out it's just a raccoon, but for a little bit, like when there's nothing between you and this other animal and it has a desire that you cannot, like you're standing between that and its dinner, that can be really scary. It doesn't even have to be a big animal, right? Uh, but 
the, you know, it's funny. Some of the things I think that can be the scariest also are the things you might not even think of as animals in, in like a normal sense, but things like fungus and mold. Like when you think about the way those can invade your body through the air and do awful things to you or like really small bacteria, those can be really scary. You know, they're like these little snails and worms that can live in water and do awful things to your body if they get in. That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I don't do well with, with, yeah, I'm more scared of things like that about like contagion, you know, things like that than I am with Freddy Krueger or something. There's really not, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to cuddle any vipers or anything like that, but there's really no animals that scare me. It's situations. So for example, I can't dive when it's dark. Um, I can't snorkel. I don't, that has no appeal to me whatsoever. Um, and the same, it could be the um, same creatures. As long as it's daylight, I wouldn't be scared, but suddenly, yeah, everything, it depends on the circumstance. So I'm more worried about circumstances in which I find things like if I'm, um, uh, if I'm climbing a tree, I don't want to come face to face with a snake in the tree, like, you know, that kind of thing, but I'm not scared of snakes, you know, that kind of thing. So it's more, I'm scared of situational um, <laughs> moments than I am animals. I, I think all animals are so beautiful and maybe slightly creepier than others, but um, yeah, I'm not really scared of too many animals. Okay. Um, and then we have a question about influence. Uh, it says, Kavai, your book often feels like magical realism. Did any of the Latin American pioneers of the genre influence you? Yeah, certainly Latin American pioneers, but I would say, you know, across a variety of cultures, uh, there's there's been a certain amount of influence. I think it's really just started with having grown up in Hawaii in a place where to this day, I think that a lot of people don't necessarily believe in the idea of a this place and the other place or this world and that world. And one is a magic world or like a, you know, the sort of spiritual world. And the other one is the corporeal. Like I don't, I think that divide can sometimes be a false one. And so the, the sort of culture I was, I was raised in didn't believe necessarily in that strong divide. And I think you'll find that in a variety of cultures as well. So that was certainly an influence. The, the Latin American, like the well-known Latin American magical realists are certainly an influence. There's a writer that's from Hawaii that wrote, uh, her name's Kiana Davenport, and she wrote several books that have what we call like magical realist elements to them. And I think really for me, it's, it's just a, I tried to work in the mode of taking things that would feel fantastical and making them maybe be ambiguous enough as to whether or not they've actually even occurred because in this book, it's in first person perspective. I wanted to give the reader space to kind of interpret it themselves and be like, nah, maybe that person thinks that thing happened, but it didn't really happen. And so, you know, even readers can come to different conclusions uh, about it, but it certainly started from a place of not really even believing in a divide between what's magic and what's real. Thanks. Amy, how about you? What are some of your influences? I loved, I mean, I certainly loved, um, Again, I, I'm aware of like how ridiculous and nerdy this is, but I loved, you know, since I was eight, there was like the whatever, like um, kids version of, of Walden. So I started with the classics of Thoreau, like Emerson for kids or um, Thoreau. And then I was like, this is boring. But then I got into Thoreau and Emerson. And then, you know, there's their living heroes, Annie Dillard and um, Brian Doyle. Um, but when I came across, just when I was kind of formulating the process of this book, there's um, a Native American writer, Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, who who really, 
I can go on and on about her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, it's not a direct, direct influence on the book, but what I loved is the spirit, just the loving, loving spirit she has in this book of showing how much we're all connected and showing what could be possible when you don't have that divide in your life, you know, um, and uh, from the natural world, you know, um, there's nothing more depressing than going into a group of, you know, elementary school kids and asking them, where do you get your fruit? And all but maybe two or three will say the grocery store. You know what I mean? And they like, it's hard for them to picture where, bana like, and if, I, and if I ask them a little bit specifically, do bananas grow in the ground, in a tree, in a bush? Is it, a, you know, like they, they don't know the, you know, and I know we live in Mississippi, but they don't, they wouldn't be able to tell like whether or not, um, some basic, what I would consider basic fruits, if it comes from a tree or if it comes from a shrub or a vine, you know, that kind of thing. I've had students before say, are bananas from a vine? You know, things like that. Where, again, I realize I don't want this to be a privileged thing. It's just um, uh, to, to have that knowledge. But I think there's more of a divide in when, when kids grow up and they don't see people gardening or they don't see uh, farmers markets, even, you know, that kind of thing. I realize even sometimes to have a garden is a privilege, you know, but when they don't see farmers market, they don't see where food comes before it gets to a grocery store that could do big damage. And we see it now. We see it now. It's, um, again, I go back to like, if you don't have names for things or see where they come from or where they grow, it's easy to say, we'll wipe out that field, you know. Okay. And then we have the question, what is something you are still curious about? in the natural world that's for both of you and I, we don't have much time i mean i think that's why all of us are here we're we i have so many questions and so many uh things i want to to learn and and i'm curious about you know one of the roots of the word wonder uh, means to smile so for me for at least the last like five years or so um there's lots that I'm curious about, but I've been trying to kind of figure, narrow that down to what am I curious about that also makes me smile. Um, so, you know, for the for the longest time, I'll go back to I'm still not done learning about them. Um, whale sharks again. I do, nobody knows it's it's one of the biggest animals on the planet, and nobody knows. And and I hope we don't figure out. I want them to. And I've written about this. This is I'm curious about it, and yet I don't want anybody to find them. Nobody has been able to find how they breed or what their nursery looks like or how they how they raise their kids. And I, so I just think that's so magical that this um, shark has been eluding um, humans. And I hope that their nursery is out of sight for for just a little bit more longer. But I, I love that. I'm I kind that's one of those things I want to know about it. And yet I'm so glad that they have this mystery. Um, keep away from humans, you know that kind of thing. So I mean, oh my goodness. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to jinx uh, anything, but I'm I'm researching snakes right now, and um, specific. I told you I'm a nerd, but I'm, I'm I want to know how actually they unhinge their jaw. I'm talking about the snakes that can kind of eat goats and little deer and things like that. So that to me, that's not for a writing project. I gen that's literally what's on my desk right now because <laughs> I just want to know. <laughs> how about you, Tobias? I think for me, part of what, what drives my, my curiosity is with regards to nature is I'm always interested in, in the, the feeling of 
power I can get from seeing the resilience of nature and the ability of things to bounce back. And so I'm always curious or, or looking for, for stories of animals that have, have adapted to circumstances in really surprising and I think very uplifting ways. You know, I can think of even when I was living in California in the Bay Area, there were some birds there whose migratory patterns had already changed as a result of temperature changes and climate change, but it changed in a way that they were still surviving and thriving. It wasn't like, oh, this is the end of this species. It was a clear ability of them to, to adapt much more rapidly than anybody had expected. So everybody was surprised to see that this adaptation had already taken place. And so I'm always curious to see what sort of signals there are like that out there, because I do believe they're there. And I think that they help give people a sense of, of um, optimism. So. Yeah. Can I, can I just say one more thing? You made me so excited, Kavai, when you, when you talk about that stuff, because that's like, that's my, I, I'd love, to, I could talk about this stuff all day. I, lo I love hearing someone else get excited about it. Um, I just, I, this, a book that's coming out soon is called Metazoa um, by um, this Australian writer. Um, anyway, he, so when you ask, like, what am I curious about? This is on, after I figure out how snakes eat. Um, this is next on my plate. And did you all know, because Kabai, you were mentioning like being able to see dolphins on the regular back in the islands and stuff like that. I did not know this, that um, dolphins were land, like dolphins um, adapted to get themselves on land and something happened and they're like, forget this, we're going back to the ocean. <laughs> and then they got rid of their, um, their appendages and stuff like that, but they're related to hippopotamuses. Um, and no so that, yeah, right. Like that's a, um, so I want to know what it is that they, they discovered, you know, unlike most of the animals that crawled out onto land and adapted, they were like, nope, I turned around and then they went back. So I just love that spirit. I, I can't even look at dolphins or hear dolphins, hear about dolphins, um, without thinking about that, that what was it on land that made them want to turn around and get back into the ocean? <laughs> so, anyway, so suffice to say, I'm just any given day, I'm, I have about five things that I'm curious about that I'm actively wanting to research. That was Amy Nezakamututil in conversation with Kwai Strong Washburn from the 2020 Portland Book Festival. The Portland Book Festival 2021 lineup has just been announced. The festival will take place from November 8th to the 13th, online, on the radio, and in person. For more information about the author lineup and schedule, visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Our show is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.